Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, everybody. This episode of Other People is sponsored by Words After War. Words After War is an emerging literary organization with a mission to offer fully funded opportunities for veterans, their families, and civilian supporters to share their stories. Words After War aims to build a supportive, creative community through writing workshops, studio retreats, and literary mentorships. The organization was co-founded by writers and longtime friends Brandon Willits and Mike McGrath, who aimed to change the national conversation around veterans' issues by including civilians in that conversation. Their first writing workshop launches this fall in Brooklyn, New York at Mellow Pages Library, and it's open to both veterans and civilians. The workshop will be led by writer and veteran Matt Gallagher, a former Army captain and the author of the Iraq War memoir, Kaboom. Matt is also a co-editor and contributor to Fire and Forget, short stories from the long war. Both of these books are published by DeCapo Press. For more information, go to www.wordsafterwar.org. That's wordsafterwar.org. They also have a Facebook page and a Twitter. Words After War, it's a literary organization for veterans and civilians. Go and support it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is transmitted via the internet. This is what your brain is currently receiving. Thanks for listening. Uh, glad you're here. My name is Brad Listy, and I'm sitting in Los Angeles, California. Jonathan Leatham is today's guest. Very excited uh, to have him on the program. He's got a new novel out from Doubleday called uh, Dissident Gardens, and he and I are going to be talking in just a moment. Uh, so what is going on? I've got to be out the door here in a minute. I'm, uh, I've got to go to the airport. My family is flying to Minnesota and, uh, we're going to spend the weekend there. It's where my wife is from. So, uh, I'm a little bit under the gun time wise, and I've also been under the weather this week. Uh, as a matter of fact, the interviews for both episode, uh, 211 and this here episode with Jonathan Letham were conducted while I was battling influenza for the second time in like three months, which is annoying. But uh, I wanted to mention this in case for some reason you listen to these shows and you think that I sound strange or at times uh, listless. <laughs> I was running a 102 degree fever with a sore throat, but I gutted it out for you uh, because I am incredibly professional. And, you know, I've also been taking long walks in the morning in the midst of this illness as an act of defiance more than anything else. Because uh, when I get sick, I like to act as if I'm not sick. Are you like that? Is anyone else like that? Uh, I'm a little hard-headed about this. And so this morning, uh, I got up still not feeling that great. But, uh, you know, I went outside and I started walking 
and something a little unusual happened. So yeah, I'm walking and I pass by a bus stop, uh, you know, near, nearby where I live and a, a homeless guy is sitting there. Very nice guy. I see him around the neighborhood all the time. And, uh, you know, he's mentally ill, but he's very sweet, uh, usually very friendly. And as I pass him by, uh, he waves to me, says hello. He always remembers my name. And uh, he asks me for my email address. And uh, this, you know, uh, caught me by surprise. So I stop and uh, he repeats his request. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm standing there and he uh, suddenly produces a leather bound address book from his bag. And he tells me in, in a kind of rambling way that he is trying to make connections and quote unquote, get networked. And here, I, I, I think I should probably emphasize a little bit more the nature of this guy's mental illness, because I, you know, I don't know exactly what it is, but I often see him standing there on the sidewalk, yelling out uh, into the street at no one in particular. He has a lot of really heated conversations with no one <laughs> or no one that I can see. So I don't know what that is. Is it schizophrenia? Is that what it is? But then other times, you know, when he's feeling more uh, tranquil, he's a very sweet guy, very jolly and good natured. So uh, there I am. And I find myself uh, giving him my email address or one of my email addresses. Uh, I gave him the address uh, for this program, letters at other And uh, I did so with uh, a level of weird trepidation that I now feel a little guilty about. Like as if there was some danger <laughs> in giving this poor man uh, my email. Like what's he going to do? Like hack into my computer? I don't know. You could probably use a pen pal, you know? So I haven't heard from him yet, and I wonder if I will. And if I do, I will keep you posted. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Jonathan Lethem. He is the author of many books and a past recipient of the National Book Critics Circle Award, uh, as well as a MacArthur Grant. His latest novel, Dissident Gardens, is available from Doubleday. Very pleased to have him here, and I hope that you guys enjoy our conversation. So let's get started with it. This right here is Jonathan Lethem, and his new novel, once again, is called Dissident Gardens. Roy E. Disney. Uh, apostrophe 51 professor of creative writing at Pomona College. Okay. And, um, and Roy was the business partner of Walt. Uh, you know, not obviously not uh, as much a household name, but in the, in the building of the gigantic uh, empire, I think an equal partner with Walt. He was the business guy and Walt was the creative guy. And he lived a bit longer and was a Pomona 51 grad. So he did the good alum thing and created a giant endowed chair in his name. 
Okay. So, and that was the same uh, position that David Foster Wallace held. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. No, he was the only one who, who because it was at, right after he was, after it was created that he was hired. So he had it and, and then, and then died. And there were a couple of years uh, in between. And then I've got it now. Okay. Well, you know, obviously those are some big shoes to fill and it's a great honor uh, to be in that position. But uh, I'm also wondering if there is any sense of pressure uh, or added significance because you're in a role uh, that was once held by him? Yeah, I was impressed and excited about it, and and, and um, uh, for sure. And I do think that it, it brings with it uh, just a, a strange and very, very particular aura that, that, that you know, Wallace... Uh, Left in this, in this institution, but also obviously just the the size of his absence in the world, the way people uh, respond to thinking about him still and and feel very torn up about it and very intimate about the work and and you know so I I, weird, I weirdly became a kind of um, you know an answer to a, a question here what well, what are we going to do what's next. But also, um, I felt, in a way, I became a designated listener, like people with Wallace feelings, students and, and even colleagues or, you know, uh, people in the, in the environment, the town. This is a very small town. He lives here now, I do. Uh, that people would want to say things about him to me. And remember, if they knew him, they'd want to remember him in front of me and, or they'd want to ask questions. Of course, usually questions I had no answer to except for just polite ones, you know, yes, that was interesting, or I, I don't know. Uh, but but that I was kind of became um, uh, charged with this, you know, I don't know what to call it exactly, but this, I was a, a responder. Right. <laughs> I was, I was a, um, I was, I was in a, uh, I'd been given a special designation vis-a-vis his, his overpowering absence and what people felt about it and that I was going to end up talking about it a lot. And that was more true at the very beginning. Um, but, but it's, uh, it's still, still true. Okay. So I want to ask you about place because, uh, you know, you you and your work are, are commonly associated with New York, uh, New York city in particular, Brooklyn in particular. And, uh, you know, you've also lived in California. You currently live in California. You've written about it. And I'm wondering if you've ever considered, uh, living in and writing about the middle of the country. Has that ever, uh, has that ever occurred to you? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I started uh, weird, weirdly enough that it, it has nothing to do with uh, anyone's image of me, including my image of myself. Except that it's just a weird fact that it's the case that I lived in Kansas City when I was a little kid. That's my first memories are from the very middle of the country. I mean, I think psychically, even though it's like not not dead center, probably somewhere in Colorado's dead center. That uh, Kansas City feels like the exact. Uh, um, umbilicus. Well, you know what's uh, funny. What's funny is that I have here in my notes, like, uh, like, and I, I meant this as a joke, but I was like, ask him if he ever wants to live in Kansas. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, and I had well, no, I I had I no idea. I, I, I scratched that off my list when I <laughs> age one to four, and so like I remember being on a kindergarten school bus, and uh, and and um, I remember trying to climb up the stairs to my father's painting studio in our house in in Kansas City, and I remember. Uh, a tornado uh, uh, drill, you know, where we, uh, and another drill, I guess it was a real tornado, and we went into the, the basement of our, uh, we lived in this big stone house on the campus of the Kansas City Art Institute, and uh, um, what I remember, what makes it a really vivid memory is that our neighbors, instead of us going to our set, you know, uh, basements, we had our neighbors who were friends come over and there was like a portable television that got plugged in and the dads were drinking beer and, um, and it was uh, the first television show I remember was during that tornado, uh, was, uh, the monkeys. Really? I remember it was on the, on the TV. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay. This is, this is really, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to build from that just for a second. This is a real, one of the really weird things is the first TV I can recall is the monkeys and the first film I ever saw in a movie theater. Uh, and I, and I, and I remember it was yellow submarine. So that's to say that both of both of these things were like melted down beetles, or like you know translated beetles. But still, and it, um, all, it also feels like of a piece with your work and with like your interests. Like 
you know, these are films and television shows involving rock and roll in some capacity, which is like yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nice but also uh, something made into something else, like the, the Human Beatles rendered into cartoons, or the the band, you know, kind of made into a a, 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 a you know another kind of TV show version of itself. It's like there's this sort of um, always something lurking behind the thing, which seems to me very consonant with like the ecstasy of influence. The idea that there's always another source. You know, that's, that's, you know, of course the Beatles are made of something else. They're, they're trying to be Buddy Holly's crickets or, you know, um, or whatever they are. But, um, so it always felt like it was sort of a charge for me. But yeah, I lived in Kansas City. My dad was teaching at the Art Institute and I, uh, was a little kid and then we moved to Brooklyn. Okay. Um, well, and I so, was going to say, I was going to say, when I read about, uh, your upbringing, uh, it seems like kind of almost exotic to me, you know, because I'm I'm from I'm from Indiana and Wisconsin. But yeah. My parents are sort of uh, conservative Southern folk, and then I read about uh, you being raised in Brooklyn, and you've got a, a painter father and a political activist mother, and you were like marching and uh, right. surrounded by all of this, um, you know, really like uh, like left leaning politics, and it just yeah. like when you. Um, you know, I know that as a kid, everything is, is just sort of taken at face value. So I'm sure when you were young, that was just the way things were. But now looking back on it, like, do you have a sense of the uniqueness of it? Sure. I mean, I think slowly grappling with the the way that the, the world you're born into, that you take for granted, um, you know, to extrapolate into a whole universe. Oh, you know, my family is, this is what families are like, my block, this is what, this is what, neighbors are like, this is what streets are like, this is the city is what the world is like, slowly conjugating that against other realities and obviously also, you know, against history, figuring out that you're, you know, you're a, a weird sporadic occurrence in, 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 you know, within the human species on the planet. That is like sort of one of the big tasks of being a, you know, uh, having a, a brain, right, is to just start uh, correcting <laughs> endlessly for what you've taken for granted um, or what you perceive as natural, but that's actually constructed. And um, I've generated a lot of excitement for myself, but also tons of confusion as I've, you know, slowly but persistently moved out of the pocket of, you know, the, the reality that I that, that I knew. And and you know, I mean. I've talked a lot in various places about how freaked out I got at college when I suddenly understood that there that there was money and we didn't have any, you know. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I had a similar experience going to uh, Colorado, at, uh, University of Colorado at Boulder, where I didn't have any sense of class until I got there. And uh, suddenly it dawned on me as friends of mine were going to their ski houses in Aspen or whatever, <laughs> And, uh, you should try Bennington College because I was like, um, basically with nobody but the like crazy drugged out, uh, prep school kids who couldn't, you know, who's everyone in their family had gone to Harvard. But okay, I'm exaggerating. But the point is, I was uh, suddenly, I was a private, I was in a private school reality and I didn't even really understand that there was one. I mean, I had some friends who went to, um, Brooklyn Friends and, I, 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 but I didn't really put, put it together. And I also, I wanted to be an artist of some kind. And, and the school I went to was, seemed to me a place where privilege was being man manufactured into artistic careers. And, and, you know, and it was precisely what my father had never managed. <laughs> he, he, and I thought I was enraged on his behalf, you know, as well as, um, you know, terrified <laughs> on my own. Sure. And, uh, well, yeah. how was so, the how was the decision made to go to Bennington? Because it seems like a leap. I mean, like, where did that even come from? Yeah, well, I, there, you know, it, it, it signified two ways. It was it was a, a famously expensive place, and it was a famously radical place. It was full of alternative approaches, and you know, it was a place where kids who hadn't gotten good grades, <laughs> like those drugged out younger siblings of the Harvard kids could get in on the basis of like personality and, you know, creativity to, to use the, 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 the stupid word. It was a place for creative kids. 
Right. So I, I sort of thought it was like the next thing after going to music in our high school, uh, which was a public high school in New York City that I'd gone to. And I thought, this is the next one for, for those who don't want to do their homework but want to spend all day like carving marble blocks or, um, you know, uh, setting canvases on fire or whatever. Um, <laughs> so wait, were you, a, were you a particularly bright child? Like, do you look back and, I mean, were you pointed to as somebody who was gifted or... Uh, well, I, to, to say yes to that sounds obnoxious, but I, I, I will say yes to it, but that the context was, again, I mean, you, you've given me the context, family life. I didn't see having artistic gifts uh, or being regarded as kind of bright or literate or wanting to think or, or talk about this kind of stuff as unusual. So I was, I was both... You know, I was proud that my parents were were taken with me. Oh, look, he can draw, and he's he's reading early, and he's drawing. So, but I also, I felt I grew up in an atmosphere where it was sort of like, yeah, okay, so what what's your next trick? Big deal. That just makes you like us. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it wasn't. I I I would sometimes feel that sensation more strongly uh, outside of the orbit of my family. I mean, when I when I first got into music and art, you had to apply, and I had a portfolio, and. I mean, I, I had, my portfolio was loaded with lots of drawings that I've been doing at my father's drawing group, you know, including from the nude, which I, which I've made lots of jokes about, <laughs> you know, that I was a 12 year old kid, like regularly doing this. But, you know, there I was with ostensibly all the other talented kids in New York City with their portfolios under their arms, auditioning to get into music and art. But the, the teacher took me aside at the audition. He was like, um, you know, I think he thought maybe that a grown-up had done the drawings for me or something. And I was like, oh, hey, I'm pretty cool. <laughs> um, but it was just the atmosphere of my, you know, my parents' world and their friends. And and um, I I had a great advantage. You know, becoming a writer, I had this great advantage that I always took, took it as a given. Not that I was a genius that people would want to pay attention. In fact, the nearest-at-hand example was you could be an artist and maybe no one would pay very much attention because my father worked and worked uh, with incredible dedication and, and, and vitality. And I thought with what I judged to be brilliant results and it was very hard. Nobody bought the paintings and they were only sporadically being shown anywhere. And he was felt frustration. Not that I was entitled to attention or, or, or fame or something, but that you could do this work if you wanted to. It was your choice. It was not exotic or esoteric. It was a daily practice. You just, if you like that, you do that. And I just never hesitated because I liked it so much. And I, and I, you know, I went into it in some ways expecting to be, you know, uh, much more neglected than I have been. Much, um, much more what? Much more neglected than I have been. You know, I've, I've written here and there about how disconcerting it was to me to be treated, uh, treated as a, a, you know, quote unquote, major writer when I always identified, I kind of imprinted on marginal artistic careers, people who were in exile or, or, or dark horses or, you know, only acclaimed after they had to be brought, dragged back into print or something. And so, um, you know, I was, for me, it was just good enough to be allowed to do it, to, to make the books and to have them put into hardcovers. I thought, I thought this would be on the shelf of some used bookstore and some kid like me will find it and not know what it is, but read it and, and love it. And that's great. That's enough, you know? Okay. And so, and when you were, when you were younger and you were developing as an artist and beginning to nurse these aspirations, uh, was it initially visual art that you thought you were going to be involved? Yeah, in? I was, I was a little painting kid. That was what I did. And then even, uh, even when I switched and began to think about narrative and writing, I kind of kept, trying to draw, you know, at first I thought I'll pull out of the visual arts some narrative choice. I'll be a cartoonist or a filmmaker. And I was really fixated on that for a little while. And it was like a transitional uh, idea of what I was, what I was going to be excited to do. And then I just sort of, uh, at age 19, I sort of shed all the other stuff and just started writing fiction and, and uh, haven't really drawn ever since then. Do you know, but that's do you, all I did. Do you know why? Like, I mean, when you kind of left behind the visual arts and started to write, was there something that happened or was there, you know, like what prompted the decision? 
I was what prompted the decision? I mean, I was I was lurking. My my love of writing and the books I wanted to, you know, I I cared. I read biographies of authors. I was in some way I was more truly turned on uh, by by books. They took me to places and gave me experiences that I that I you know and I I cared a lot for going to museums and looking at paintings, but um, I think most of all the, the language was you know, um, it mattered the most to me. And so I was clinging to the other stuff because I was kind of good at it. In truth, I think it just, I had so much encouragement, so much easy encouragement for making, you know, paintings and sculptures. And then, you know, or for thinking that that's where my special gifts lay. But, uh, you know, the, the way I love books was different. It was just different. So it's about, it's about that passion and connecting it. Do you think that it has any? Was there any? Was there any element to it uh, involving identity? You know, your father's a visual artist, so maybe did you think to yourself, maybe if I pursue writing, it would allow me to kind of carve out some of my own territory? That might be. I mean, of course, I was I was squirming around like any teenager to have my own world. You know, and I, um, I've often it looked really comical to me in retrospect how. You know, my parents' record collection was kind of diverse and cool, and it, inv- it included a lot of things that I hold very dear now. But when punk rock came out, you know, it, w- it broke out, and it was seemed available to me as a kind of identification because it wasn't there. So it seemed specifically designed to sound irritating and <laughs> primitive to them, you know. So I was, of course, like anyone, looking for my own precinct. And maybe in some very big way, the move from writing to painting satisfied the need to, you know, simultaneously disappoint my father as well as, uh, you know, gratify him. Because I was, you know, I was really his creature in a lot in, in a lot of ways, but I could seem to be throwing off my legacy maybe there for a second anyway. Okay. Um, so- pretty, pretty quickly he figured out that what I was doing had everything to do, you know, creatively with his example. Well, I was going to say, because like, you know, you have a, when you, when you're an artist and you have a parent who's an artist, um, they're obviously going to have a much uh, deeper frame of reference for what you're up to. So, like, yeah, you know, yeah. was he? A, he must have been a good teacher for you. I mean, was he a, a gentle yeah. hand? Oh, absolutely! Just totally. Uh, I mean, the fundamental thing he taught me was that that you know uh, your your work was nurtured from deep sources, from a continuous replenishment, you know, at those sources. Going constantly looking at stuff and going to museums and going to galleries and thinking about it and talking about it and responding in the work, and that it was also connected to the other arts that you know he read books seriously and you know was was you know really engaged with stuff that it came from personal material because his, his work always did, um, but that that stuff had to be transformed by formal pressure you know by craft and and. And by an engagement with the tradition and the form, and so everything comes, you know, comes directly out of that, and uh, and and that it was a craft that there was uh, patience involved, discipline, absorb, quiet, slow absorption of 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 the practice or the various aspects of the practice, um, and then you know I would even add that if you look at his paintings, I mean they they changed, they they had a lot of different aspects over the years, but he has always uh, insisted on including work elements in his paintings that are drawn from life, that are directly observed, uh, alongside, even on the very same canvas, with imaginary or grotesque or fantastical imagery, you know, things that are come just from pouring out of his imagination. And in that refusal to choose, to say, oh, I just worked from life, or oh, I just worked from the imaginative uh, realm, I paint my dreams. Uh, but by fusing those two, he, he obviously that's <laughs> where a lot of my uh, energy comes from in my work is from refusing to choose. Okay. So I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about your mother who uh, passed away when you were just a teenager, correct? I was uh, 14 when she died. And she, I mean, she'd been ill since... Uh, I, th- I think she got sick the summer I was 11. And, you know, so it was a saga. It wasn't like one sudden, 
amputation. I, I, uh, she was in the hospital and had two, two different major surgeries on her cancer. And, you know, one seemed like it was, um, going to do it. And another, uh, was a disaster and left her really impaired, but you know, there's just like a lot. And then she died, uh, in September when I was 14, the, the, the week after I started high school. Oh, that's, uh, that's tough. It's not an ideal age. Not that any age is ideal, but, uh, I'm wondering when you look back on it, if there's any way for you to articulate or measure, uh, the impact of that experience, you know, not just personally, but creatively. Well, I, it's, you know, it's incalculable by definition. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's incommensurability is, it's, you know, it's major characteristic to put it really pompously. I, I, if I could say what it was to lose her, I wouldn't be writing about it in a hundred different guises in book after book. Right. Right. Uh, but the thing that I can, you know, I have learned to, 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 um, grasp about, you know, obviously there's a, just this howling emotional central thing that, that can't be grasped. It can only just be, you know, encountered in different ways. But what I, what, what I can step away to see is that there's some way in which the narrative of a life with a family interrupted the way mine was, uh, the loss of a, a parent, a huge, hugely charismatic, powerful, you know, central, you know, like a son that we all orbited around kind of parent that I was also somehow already predisposed, even in the, as I began to experience this loss, I was predisposed to see lives and see both personal and collective experience sort of in terms of disasters, wrenching losses, rugs being pulled out from under you, things being uh, destroyed. And, and some of that has to do with my grandmother's attitude towards the Holocaust, and it had to do with my parents' political realities and the sense of failure or betrayal or, you know, incompleteness, things that had, that, that, that had been, worlds that had been dreamed up that weren't going get to get to be. And it had to do with uh, New York City in the 70s, the sense that I lived in a place that was like both great and the tragic, you know, pale shadow of its earlier greatness. It was, it was a travesty or disaster area. And so I was, I experienced, you know, the feeling of, of course, <laughs> you have a thing and you lose the thing. You have a world and, you, and the world begins to shut down or be, or be, you begin to be thrust out of it too soon. Or, you know, it's like, I felt the reverberations of losing my mother were already, uh, I had a, uh, context, um, you know, to compare, obviously I would compare every subsequent loss in my life to that at some emotional, helpless, emotional level. But I think I was also comparing the loss of her to esoteric feelings of, you know, the imperiled, world well yeah do you, do you think that like being surrounded by um that kind of political activism and those kinds of worldviews and being in new york city and in brooklyn at that particular time in its history like gave you some sort of psychological ground that might have in some way uh prepared you that's probably the wrong word but do you know what i'm saying it it made me let's just say it made me thoughtful <laughs> as well as suffering i was thoughtful and i and i had a lot of you'd call them in some ways disassociation, right? But I had a lot of ways that I was experiencing what I was experiencing that were indirect as well as the direct ones. And they were intellectual, even if the center of the experience was you know, primal. <laughs> uh, so that's different from being prepared. But right. it's to say that um, I, I guess in some way I was interested in what was happening to me or it mattered to me outside of the framework of selfish, you know, pain of suffering, of, 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 of loss. It mattered to me in 
other ways to think about and live with. Uh, that that I think you know the work reflects my dealing with this experience both directly and indirectly. You know. Yeah, and did you, as a child, like when in the aftermath of this, um, did you act out at all? Like, what happened to you behaviorally? Well, you know, acting out was uh, tricky for me uh, in in the family I had and in the exact age place I was at and in also in birth order kind of I was the responsible kid I was the always the poised kid the mature one um you know, I, there was two there were these two younger children my brother and sister who were more explicitly helpless in this in the face of this I was 14 I could kind of declare myself prematurely graduated from my family you know and then so my my and you know it was a hard family to act out against because they were you know to put it <laughs> Baldly, there was like drugs, promiscuity, nudity, and rock and roll. So, what do you, you know, the corny, the joke is, are you, so what are you going to become a stockbroker, right? That's not too interesting. So, I, instead, I think I just moved sideways. I, I, I went up away from the family rather than acting out or enacting any kind of self destructive things that anyone would recognize. I, I risked, well, I did inflict a kind of terrible increased malnourishment on myself for you know the solace that was available with my remaining family i turned my back on it and i lose my mother so what's my response i don't need my dad either you know um uh and i also in turn i inflicted the loss of my presence on you know my brother and sister which i still think about that with great sadness but i i just decided enough I must have had enough. 14 is old enough. She was a great mom. I'm done. I'm a finished product. I'm out. And I, I, I spent the next few years just being anywhere except at the site of the disaster and, and living uh, as much as I could in friends' homes. And with these, I made some really fascinating grown-up friends, you know, very kind people and, and marvelous people who are still part of my life who found me, you know, I guess interesting enough or combination of interesting and poignant enough to let me tag along with them in their, you know, interesting lives. I just, I just, you know, between 14 and 18, when I could officially, I could officially cut the cord and go off to college, I made myself scarce. And so did you, and is, did you start working in bookstores during this time? Yeah, that's exactly one of the places I was hiding was in the used bookstores. I mean, what a great because I, I kind of feel like you have Great like a there's like a luck. you have like a literary um you, like your personal narrative strikes me as like the literary equivalent in some ways is like the Quentin Tarantino working in a video store. <laughs> like have, yeah. you, have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard that comparison? Because... I have heard that comparison a couple of times. I think I can live with it. I mean, you know, I I think that uh, we definitely arrived at a similar uh, um uh what kind of. Uh, way of enshrining the outre or underdog parts of our, you know, there's something about him watching all those, you know, videos that nobody else was watching. It corresponds to me reading all the books that, you know, when you work at a used bookstore, what's left behind to read is what someone didn't opt for. So right. all my love of the out of print stuff comes very naturally out of that. But it's also, you know, connects to my identifying with my father's career, the idea that you could be a important painter, but maybe no, not that many people knew it. Um, and and with the political life of believing that you were, you know, that I, obviously I, I knew I shared an American identity, but I also believed that I was part of a sub-identity, the dissidents within the, the American identity, the exiles or the marginal types. So I loved art that seemed to reflect the same attitude or um, posture. Well, now you've written a book, you know, that deals with a lot of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Ironically, probably my most normative, you know, family saga, it strikes people as uh, the least, you know, marginal, stylistic or formal move, but it's a giant love letter to, you know, that, that attitude of, uh, you know, this, the, the, you can't fire me. I quit people. <laughs> <laughs> so are you, are you a, uh, political person today? I mean, based on yeah. your upbringing, like, or is it one of those things where you're like, I did my time, I grew up in it. And, you know, I, I guess I would say that in the, in the 
consolation of my private vanities, I feel very, I feel like I have a lot of well-articulated critiques of, of what I see around me. And, um, you know, and, and then when I, by the evidence of my actual behavior or speech or participation in anything political, I'm, I'm probably look pretty paltry. I'm, I'm, I'm intermittent at best. Let's say that I have, I have convictions, but they're not really very well, uh, produced in terms of, you know, uh, being on the front lines or, 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 uh, convincing other people or, well, you know, it or, take, takes a know, lot of energy. Being effective. It takes, it takes a lot of energy. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I guess I sound like I'm beating myself up about it. I, I, I wouldn't say I, I meet my family's traditional standard for political engagement, but <laughs> I, I do sign a petition here or there and, you know, I try, I try not to, uh, uh, make wrong choices anyway. <laughs> sure. sure. So, uh, I want to ask you, uh, one more question about Bennington because I forgot, sure. I forgot to ask it earlier, yeah. but you were there in the early eighties um, and were you there in the same class uh, or at the same time as Brett Easton Ellis? Yeah, Dr. well, I mean, I, uh, it's a tiny place, and we were all there at the exact same time, and I kind of knew them really well, um, but in in problematic ways. And then mostly made problematic by how bad I was at being at that place and dealing with anything there. I mean, all my friendships were were fraught by the kind of, you know, acting out I was doing against the uh, institution and against the idea of myself as a, a, a you know, a, a solid citizen of, of, uh, higher education. Um, but they mattered enormously to me. I mean, I, I think about them and, and the time we did know each other a lot and, and in really int- int- intricate ways. And I haven't had the, you know, had a continuing, really a continuing dialogue with either of them, much more of one with Brett, who, who you know, he and I sort of revive our our uh, contact every few years, and it's always really striking to me again. He's a, he's a very, very, uh, he's not a simple person, um, and but I think things matter very deeply to him that maybe a lot of people at a glance think he's flippant about. And um, and one of those is he's, he's he's like me. He thinks about our time at Bennington. He's he's very connected to his past and to people we knew. You know, uh, he he's we what we end up doing is talking about where people have ended up. Well, it's interesting when we, that's, when we see each other. That's quite like a that's quite a little hive of talent that was all there at once. That seems like yeah. Well, no one would have taken me for part of the hive. <laughs> at the time i was i was a very weak weak link uh you know i i was just barely producing my first few stories and they they wouldn't have impressed those two uh colleagues if i'd shown them to them or or anyone much else yet i was i had a lot i had a long way to go but um uh yeah there were you know there were I mean, while you're mentioning it, there were four or five others who, in that tiny, tiny school, who published fiction as well. Some of it very, uh, very impressive and 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 worthwhile. Even if uh, you don't hear from them so so much these days, Joseph Clark and uh, and um, Jill Eisenstadt uh, were at school with us, and um, a couple of couple of good nonfiction writers too. Mm. Have come out of that weird cluster, and I don't—I can't account for it. I don't know that it means anything more than like a cancer cluster does. But <laughs> so I want to read—I want to read something you said to you. Uh-oh. Uh oh, that's always bad. No, but this. <laughs> Uh, I, no, you go ahead. It's really jumped out at me. Uh, yeah. you, you once said, "There's something so poignant and personal to me about that period of self-invention in your 20s, when you are uh, kind of a pretentious fool by definition, and never more so than if you're." trying as i was to become an artist of some kind it's so compelling to me to think about how much of a pretender i had to be you announce yourself to the world before you've accomplished anything and no one cares and you sort of have to stake out this attitude and try out this profile before anyone cares and there's something so tender about that yeah okay so, okay I'll, I'll i'll stand by those words i think i was i i i'm very sure that i was um talking about writing uh, the impulse to write you don't love me yet you know um which you know that the rock band in that in that book 
they're all on the verge of turning 30 or yeah, they're all in their late twenties. And, um, you know, I think that that sense of the mounting anxiety as the people who are really going to find a way to live the life that, you know, going to art school or, you know, living as a bohemian in your early twenties, living in, in one of those neighborhoods, wherever it happens to be, that it's sorting out. There's going to be winners, losers, and people who just make a deft sidestep into something a little more professional without the same sense of walking a tightrope of, you know, of risk and desire. And I identify with it. I don't know what to say. I just do. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I think it's a, it's a pretty kind view of like, like oneself. If, you know, if you're looking back on yourself and, <laughs> in that phase of your twenties, I mean, I can look back at myself and just like cringe and it's, it's, it's all sort pain. Of, it's fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's plenty, plenty of pain too. Yeah. Yeah. And also humor. I mean, it's like, it's funny yeah. to think back to like how serious th- certain things could be yeah, now, yeah, when yeah. you're trying to invent, but, um, like, do you ever look back on early work that you've done? I'm talking about published work, not work that you were right. know, writing at Bennington. But do you look right. back on early work and cringe, or do you have a pretty forgiving relationship uh, to it? Well, I mean, the, the simplest thing to say in answer to that is I don't look, really look back on it in, in, the, in the literal sense that I, I don't re- reread the books. I mean, I never knew whether I would or not. I was actually, I remember when I was younger, when I was reading about writers and wishing to be one, that I'd, I read this remark in a couple of places that some people said, oh, I never read my own books. And I thought, that's crazy. How could you not? <laughs> but now I, have, now I never have. I mean, I never have once read, gone back when a book is published and just read it like a book. Because what's, the, what's in it for me? I, I either am just sitting there, you know, in a masturbatory glaze confirming my own brilliance, or I'm, or I'm doing what you say, I'm cringing, I'm hating it all. And I, so it's always seems so much more urgent to me. I feel like I do know what the books consist of and I, I might be wrong or I might be right. But anyway, there are other people who can cringe on my behalf now, you know, <laughs> let, let, let others cringe. I don't, I I want to think about the next book. And, you know, I, I, I never felt that I was going to be, um, you know, I think part of this may even come from, uh, the same place as, uh, some of the other answers that, that the visual arts, you know, you know, when you look at a book of Goya, you see these, you know, 20 or 30 masterpieces. And you see also lesser paintings, the sketches, studies, notebooks, it's all Goya. Right. I don't think that I've ever felt prohibitive about like imperfection, you know, I don't, I don't have that attitude that, uh, you know, I guess I can kind of surmise is out there uh, that, that there's something to be, you know, something tormenting about uh, some, you know, I, I want the work to be imperfect, even where it's great in a sense. I want it to be human. I want my marks to show. I want the evidence of my thinking and pushing and, and, and fitfulness to be incorporated into the work. So the fact that maybe there's also some, work that is more, you know, <laughs> more fitful than it is successful. That's not, that's not going to bother me. I don't, I, you know, and I also don't, I don't have the presumption that I know for sure. You know, a lot of people in, you know, who have the, have the uh, luck of being regarded by posterity at all. And that's very, very few of us ever will be regarded by posterity. But of those, many of them thought that, you know, some, bloated bullshit was their best work and everyone else now agrees that it's you know like you know voltaire wrote all these books of philosophy but we read candide which he wrote as a little inane jest you know i think jonathan swift might have had a similar kind of attitude you know so who who am i to say right uh you know i still you know the other day on book tour i met this guy who was sort of begging me to go back to write like um gun with occasional music again and it's so poignant to me because i don't know does that mean he's read all the subsequent books and judged them inferior to my first? Or does it just mean he loved that one so much he can't stop thinking about it? You know, but I know, of course, I, that I'm destined to break his heart. The, the, that book was written by a 22-year-old, you know, started by one. And I'm not him, and I just couldn't. I don't know how I'd even begin to try to re-inhabit that skin. But 
I get it. Either writers, I feel that way about, <laughs> you know. So it's all. It seems all okay to me. I guess yeah. Forgiving is the right the right word for my my general uh, stance. That I I try, I, I'm, I try to you know I've learned. It took a while. You know, a book like um, that one about Talking Heads is a account. I also wrote about this in in. Uh, in the beards and that essay at the end of ecstasy and influence, I used to be very, very merciless about right. Uh, creative people, writers, artists, anyone who seemed to have failed me or taken a misstep, you know, and then later I got confused by how angry that always made me. I started to wonder what, who am I really angry at in this conjunction? Who were you, know, who, so were, who were you really angry at? <laughs> well, me or the world or just the imperfection of connection. You can't always be, uh, electrified at either end of the equation. Right. You have to do a lot of things to get to those rare moments. So why on earth would you, you know, hold someone's feet to the fire for not feeling the same way to you that they did when you were 17, you know? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, you know what? I'm looking at the clock and I have to let you go. Uh, I apologize for, for cutting things short a little bit here, but um, it has been a great thrill to have you on the program. I really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best of luck going forward. Thanks. All right. I'll see you on the circuit. Okay. Good luck with your own work. Take you. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Yeah. Bye. All right, folks. There you go. That is Jonathan Lethem. Go get Dissident Gardens. It's out right now from Doubleday. You can find him online uh, at Facebook, I believe. And he's also at JonathanLetham.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music as usual. Uh, be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget to check out as well. Uh, today's sponsor, wordsafterwar.org. Go there, support it, and don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It is the best and most user-friendly way to listen to this program. It's incredibly user-friendly. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get it if you haven't done so already. The app itself is free. Uh, okay, I'm out the door soon. I have to go pack. And then I'm going to fly on an airplane. And uh, I'm going to go to the middle of the country. I'm going to land there. And uh, I will assimilate. And marvel at the changing leaves. Please remember that Emily Dickinson once referred to herself as, quote, a wayward nun, and that Mark Twain's house in Hartford was the first in town to have a telephone. That is it for now. Uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks again to Jonathan Lethem. Go get his book. And uh, I will be back in just a few days with another conversation with another writerly human being. Uh, and possibly a long-winded email from a sweet-faced uh, schizophrenic homeless man. 